0: You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And we are going to be learning today the Torah reading of Teruma, which literally means dedication, donation. And now we begin with the building of the tabernacle. So until now, we spoke about how the Jewish people came out of Egypt, the miracles of crossing the sea, the giving of the Torah, The laws that were given. And now God comes and tells the Jewish people about the building of the tabernacle. Now you'll notice that not only is this Torah reading about the building of the tabernacle, but also about five Torah readings from here until the end of the book of Exodus discusses about the building of the tabernacle. The first two sections that we're going to be reading this week and next week are about when God tells it to Moses. And then the last two sections of the book of Exodus were mostly it to the Jewish people and how they actually bring it into fruition. A fascinating thing happened. I mean, many fascinating things happened. And first of all, I think it's important to mention that uh, we, always have, we always ask Hashem for many things, but it's just as important to thank Hashem for all the miracles that happened. And just this morning, we, we learned about the two captives that were uh, freed. And Baruch Hashem, thank God, no injuries on the way. And they were brought back home to safety. Hostages? So, uh, two hostages were brought back. Yeah. So they oh, got I them. That. So, that's that's, right. uh, so we thank Hashem for those miracles and look forward to continuous miracles and many more. And there's another 134 that have to come back home. But talking about hostages, talking about hostages and so on, in the days right after Simcha Torah, there were many, of course, many families sitting shiva, around Israel for the unfortunate deaths and the tragic deaths of their loved ones. There was a family sitting Shiva in Atniel, which is next to Hebron, and they asked a rabbi to come and talk to them about the terrible tragedy that they've gone through. The family's name was the Rivlin family, and they had four sons. And their four sons worked. They were part of the... Um, they were part of the uh, technology of the orchestra, of the whole thing that was going on by the concert. They were the ones that set it up and they were the DJs and everything that had to do with it. Two of their sons were killed and two of their sons survived with great miracles. And you hear their stories, how they're talking about how their one son, while he was hiding, hurt the other son, being, his other brother being killed and he couldn't go out and help him or else he would be risking his life. But all these... Terrible tragedies that you see. The rabbi who went to pay a shiva call recounts, and he says he walked out, confused, broken. You look at these people. These were religious family, the parents, religious couple. They used to live in a settlement called Tifrach. Before that, in the south. From one of those from that was here from years ago, the old traditional, uh, old settlements. And you see the father crying about his children who were dancing in the Nova Concert. And instead of dancing at, at Simchas Torah, they were dancing at some concert. You saw the divide between the family, so to speak, that the difference in religion, but the connection, the feeling was still there no matter what their children did, as much as he would have wanted his children to be dancing some castora, But the connection, the crying, the, 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 the inherent relationship that exists between parent and child, regardless of what their children believed or did, you saw was so palatable. Each person tries to sometimes understand and see what's going on here. Where does it happen? Sometimes we look... At our children, we want them to be one thing. And they're not always what we project or want them to be. Do we love them less? Do they make them less our child? Of course not. But at the same time, where do we see that relationship? How do we understand that relationship of a parent to a child? Begins with the relationship that we as the Jewish people have with God as well. And we see that in the actual holiest place of the, uh, of the tabernacle, the holiest place that God requests of every single one of us to make a sanctuary. In there, there was an ark. And in the ark itself, there were two things. There was the luchos, the tablets, which the Torah was given to. And then as well, there were the broken tablets, which seemingly were insignificant. Why did the broken tablets have to be in the ark? And over here, that the Torah is telling us something so unique, that even somebody who may be a broken tablet. He may not fulfilling the commandments to the greatest ability of his or her abilities. They are still in the ark. They still have a place in the Holy of Holies. They still have godliness. They have a pinterly They have a soul within them that can never be ejected. We're going to understand this and see this. And understanding what is it within the Jew? What is it within the pinterly What's the quintessence of the Jew that doesn't allow for him to leave or become disconnected from God. That no matter what a Jew does in his life, they always have that inherent connection to Hashem. And we'll understand this by looking at an interesting debate about the construction of the actual Ark. The Ark, which is known as the Ark of the Covenant. And the question is, what is the Ark? What was it made of? And Rashi looks at this whole picture and looking at the Ark as two different parts. The top was one part, the Ark, the bottom which held the Torah was a second part. In contrast to Nachmanides, we'll soon see, has a different opinion and he looks at it as one unit. And what actually is the debate? And what do I care if the difference if it was two units or one unit, if one was on top of the other, what's going on over here? And we're going to see as we develop this whole concept that within the Ark there were two ideas. There was the intellectual component of our relationship with God and the inherent component with our relationship with God. And this is what it depends on how I view the Ark as two pieces or as one piece. And with this we'll be able to better understand our relationship with God, our relationship with our children and what this makes us as people in believing in God. So let's start with what it says in the beginning of this week's Torah reading. This week's Torah reading tells us, as we mentioned, that the Jewish people are commanded to bring 15 different items to donate to the Holy Temple. Gold, silver, and all the different materials that they were going to build the Holy Temple. And as we mentioned, the next five Torah readings discuss the actual construction of the Temple, the tabernacle that was in the desert, and eventually a similar built-in image or uh, was built by King Solomon when they came to Jerusalem. And eventually, as we know, and this is what we always look forward to, that when Mashiach comes, we will then build a third and holy temple. To that's when the coming of Mashiach to build the Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. That that is our aspiration, and that's what we pray for. As we say it in the prayers, in the daily prayers, three times a day, we say it in the grace after meals, and we always are praying for and looking forward toward the city of Jerusalem, the building of the holy temple in Jerusalem. And what is in Jerusalem the holiest place? The Beis Amingdush, the Holy Temple. And in the Holy Temple, what's the holiest place? Is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark. Like we know that where do we dive in? We face east because we're facing towards Israel. In fact, in Australia, they face west because they're on the other side. But wherever you are, you're facing towards Israel. In Israel itself, you're facing towards Jerusalem. In Jerusalem itself, you're facing towards the Western Wall, which is facing towards the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, when the Akhagatul would go in Yom Kippur, he would face... The Ark of the Covenant. So what's the epic center, if you want to call it, of the actual entire holiness of the Divine Presence in this world is the Ark of the Covenant. Talking about Jerusalem and our aspirations towards Jerusalem is a fascinating, fascinating story about a Holocaust survivor by the name of Benjamin Wurzberger. Lived in Hungary, lost his entire family while he was in the camps. In Austria, every day they would give him the rations of bread. And one of these terrible Nazi generals that were giving out, or you know, Nazi officers giving out the bread, looked at him and he said, Oh, you cursed Jews. You're dreaming about going to Jerusalem. You'll never end up there. You'll end up there in your ashes. And he always remembered that curse, that disgraceful Nazi that would say such terrible things to a person who can barely eat. And throughout his life, he thought about it even after he survived the camps, made it to Israel, Lived a successful life in Israel. Finally, at 65 years old, he was retired. And that message, that constant message ringing in his ears of the Nazi telling him he'll never make it to Jerusalem was still bothering him. He finally came to the Western Wall. And if you go to the Western Wall, you'll see there's a whole office that's in charge of taking care of the Western Wall. And he went to them and he said, I want to work here. I want to do something. I'm retired I want to volunteer." They look at him. What can you do? He says, what can I do? I can sweep up. I can clean up. I can put away the sadurim. And that's what he did. And he did that until he was 95 years old. He was cleaning up every single day. He was the one sweeping up, cleaning up. He says, every single day that I sweep and clean up this area by the western wall, he's telling that Nazi you lost. But we talk about the idea, but getting back to our concept that we talk about that the whole epic center of the whole Divine Presence is in this Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? What was it made of? What is it so special about it in this room that was 10 Amos by 10 Amos, which is about 20 feet by 20 feet? What was in here? What was so unique about it? So let's look in this week's Torah reading a little bit about how it was built. And the Torah tells us as follows. That the Ark had to be made in three steps. There was the actual box. There was the cover on it. And then out of the cover, molded in one shape, was the golden cherubim that were coming out on top of the ark. What was the ark box itself? So the Torah tells us in the book of Exodus in this week, it was two and a half amos, hand breadth on one way, two and a half amos the other way, one and a half amos one way. It was wood on the outside, wood on the inside and gold, I'm sorry, gold on the outside, gold on the inside and wood in between. So Rashi explains... The Tzalel, in his great creativity, came up with the idea. He made a golden box on the outside, which was bigger, a wooden box on the inside, which was smaller, and then another golden box on the inside, which was even smaller. And in it was placed the Torah, the scrolls and differences of opinions, if the actual Torah that Moshe wrote was inside the Ark itself, or a little shelf was made on the outside, and that's where they put the scroll. Besides that, there was a golden cover. The golden cover, there was a little crown that went around the top, like a crown molding out of gold and on top of that were the two kruvim that were shaped out of it that came up with wings and they're called kruvim. So what are we talking about over here? Basically a box that had in it the ark that had in it I'm sorry the tablets the two tablets that Moshe got from God and the broken tablets as well as we mentioned. So what is this ark? What was it all about? Nachmanides explains that why was it so important? Why was this ark so of, of such great importance? And he says, being that God tells Moses, that I'm going to talk to you from above, from the, from the ark, that means from between the Krubim. So the Krubim were as if to say God's throne on this world. And the Krubim, the shapes, were like angels, because we find already in the book of, Ex- in the book of Genesis, where God says, after he, uh, he threw Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, that he put Krubim to protect the entrance that they should not be able to get into which he calls that angels. Angels, so you want to call that these were two angels on top of it? And this was like the beautiful holy place where God's divine presence would emanate from. This is what Nachmanides explains. And Nachmanides continues to say that first what they did was they built this entire box. After they made the box with the kubim on top of it, they then lifted the box, put the Uh, the tablets into it, and the Torah into it, and whatever had to be in the box, and that's what's considered the Ark of the Covenant. So if we're looking at Nachmanides' view of it, this was one idea, that means the top and the bottom were considered one entity, you have the box on the bottom, which was the place that kept the tablets, and was covered by the Krubin, which was God's throne. That's the way Nachmanides learns it. Rashi, who's usually very simplistic when it comes to his commentary on the Torah, seems to over here have a whole different view of how this is taught. And Rashi says the opposite. That number one, yes, there was a box. But first they put in the tablets and they put in what Moshe received. Only afterwards did they cover it and make the krubim go on top. Now you could say it's a technicality. What's the big deal? If I put in the Torah first, I put the Torah in afterwards. Because Rashi believes in this case that these two items, the top and the bottom, were two separate things. There was a box that God told them to make because if you look in the words in the Torah, God says make a box. In the box, you're going to put in the tablets. Step number one. Then you're going to make something else and that thing is called a kaporas. That gold was a cover. That cover had kruvim coming out of it and that was something else. That's the way Rashi wants to view it. And Rashi views that the kruvim And the katoras, the cover of it, was considered in a separate entity, a separate connection which symbolized something different than the actual box and the tablets in it. Many of the commentaries on the Rashi go on to explain that in fact, they learn it from a particular verse, the very fact that God says, and you will put into into the Ark of the Covenant, you will put the Torah, tells us that this is a specific commandment to put it in first and only then cover it. What is Rashi telling us? With This brings us to another idea. That Rashi automatically changes the translation to the word Krubin. He no longer translates it angels as he did previously in the book of Genesis. Over here Rashi tells us over here that all of a sudden these Krubin come to tell us they were faces of children facing each other. Now over here even Maimonides also looks and learns that the word Krubin means angels. They want to say that Krubin means angels because we also find in the prophecy of Hezekiel where he talks about the chariot and the vision that he sees and he sees an ox and a calf shining from the heaven and they say that's what he saw was the Krubin and therefore they want to believe that what was on the actual ark was also the Krubin. And therefore many other commentators want to say that these Krubim were angels and was a view of angels. Someone even suggests That why did all of a sudden the Jewish people make a golden calf? Where did they get the idea of a golden calf? In two weeks time we can learn about the golden calf. Where did they get a golden calf? They said why did they get a golden calf? Because they know, because the Krubin were in the shape of a calf. So therefore, they made a golden calf. Because they said that's where the Divine Presence comes from. So you see, that's according to the commentary that says that it was a calf where there was an ox on the actual Krubin. The Talmud tells us something very interesting. The Talmud tells us that the Kruvim actually come from the word children. That there was a baby boy and a baby girl. And even more so, that when the Jewish people were getting along and following what God told them to do, then they were facing each other. And when they weren't following God's commandments, then they weren't facing each other. And this is what Rashi comes along and tells us in this case, that it was Kruvim, means children. So when we talk about according to the opinion of Rashi, that the Ark of the Covenant was not God's throne, but on the contrary, it's children. Not symbolizing God, but symbolizing the Jewish people. Rashi is going according to his opinion, that in this case, the Krubim are not part of the actual Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant meaning, where the Torah, that symbolizes God. The cover where the, angels, where the little child was coming out from, that symbolized the Jewish people. That symbolized this world. That the Ark of the Covenant was the fusion of physical and spiritual. Physical is the children, spiritual, the Torah coming together. And that's why the Divine Presence emanated from that spot, because that's what's the merge between heaven and earth. That's where heaven and earth came together. And this is what we see, that the Rashi explains the difference that we have between Rashi and Nachmanides. The question that we all can ask is what's the difference? If I say that the Torah is greater than the Jews, then the Jews are greater than the Torah. If I say it's two separate boxes or it's one box. If I say that it was the ark that they first put in the Torah and then afterwards they put on the cover, I put the cover on and then I put it in. The bottom line is it's the same, day, same idea. It's the same thing. That's where the divine presence came out of. Are we just arguing about a technicality because everything in the Talmud has to be an argument? What is the argument here? What are they discussing here? And the Rebbe explains this according to the understanding of what the Baal of the way he viewed every single Jew and the relationship that God has with every Jew. And to understand this, we understand what it means to be a Penteleid, the essence of the Jew. So first we'll start with a story that I said once before, but it's a great story regardless. I'm talking about God being present in everything we do. There was a fellow about 20 years ago, went to Costa Rica to make a Seder. In Costa Rica, in one of the far distant areas in Costa Rica, a lot of tourists used to come there. And they so Chabad and always would go to different places to have a Seder that even the Israeli backpackers should have a place to go to. And that's why Nepal has one of the largest Seder. And one of them were in Costa Rica. The Chabad Shliach is in San Jose, which is the capital of Costa Rica. So they went there to load up on all the stuff that they needed. They got all their... Meals, their grape juice, matzo, whatever they needed to make the Seder. The Seder was beautiful, all the Israeli backpackers singing and enjoying a wonderful Seder. The next night, many of the Israeli backpackers, they only keep one night Pesach, because since they're, wherever they go, they take Israel with them. So therefore, they don't believe in making a second Seder. The Bachram that were there wanted to have some company for the second Seder, so there were a few locals. The locals, they said, you're not backpackers. You have no right not to come the second night. You got to be here tomorrow night. One of the locals said, you know what? We'll come tomorrow night on one condition. Today he gave us grape juice. But if tomorrow you can get a bottle of alfasi wine, it's from Chile, you know, if you can get us a bottle of alfasi wine, we'll be here tomorrow. He says, okay. The bocher says, no problem. bottle of alfasi wine. Okay, they make the deal, but now the guys to go figure out where he's getting a bottle of a fussy wine. On the second night of Seder, he barely had matzah, barely chicken, fish, whatever they got, they only got from San Jose. Where is he going to discover, even in the store, you're not going to find it. Even if you want to go on Pesach and shop, where is he going to get a bottle of Fassi fussy wine? So, all of a sudden, while they're looking around, they start looking. And they said, you know what, tomorrow we'll figure it out. They start preparing for tomorrow night Seder. And they're taking out all the stuff that they have. And they reminded themselves that right before they left the rabbi's house in San Jose, they were loading up grape juice. And they asked the rabbi, maybe you have just a few bottles of wine for us to drink during the Seder. You don't want to make this four cups of wine. We want to have it on wine, not on grape juice. Maybe you got some wine. He says, I got to tell you, this year the order didn't come in on time. I am stuck with almost nothing. Go down to the basement. Whatever you find there, you can have." They went down to the basement. They found a case of wine. He goes now getting ready for the second Seder. What kind of wine is it? Alfasi wine. The guy comes the second Seder. His bottle of Alfasi wine is there. And God does his job. What we see over here is you do your part. And God already does his part. In the, to- in the world there are two things that are very important to God. And very important if it's important to God. Then it's important to read. Which is the Torah and the Jewish people. And God will take care of the Torah and the Jewish people for eternity. Regardless of it, all the atrocities and difficulties and challenges and trials and tribulations that we went through, the Torah will all be, is eternal, the Jewish people is eternal, and God is eternal. And as long as the Jewish people are with the Torah, we'll be eternal as well. And every single Jew has within himself an eternal part of God. As we know, when God created everything in the universe, every single thing when God created, God said, and it should be. By and God said it will be, and God said it should be. However, when he created the human being, when he created the Jew, God said, He exhaled from within himself and thereby putting the soul into the creation. That means every single human being has a soul, a connection to God. We'd only have a cre- we're not only a creation of God, but we have a part of God within us. So the same way God is eternal, the Jewish people are eternal and the Torah is eternal. And therefore, these are the two most important things that exist in the world. So when God is creating a sanctuary for Himself, what do you think He does? What does He have to include? He has to include the most important item, the Jewish people and the Torah. And therefore, in the most important place in the world, in the Holy of Holies, what is there an item which shows on this bond between the Jewish people and God? What is that? The, Torah, the Ark. In the Ark was the Ten Commandments, which are the tablets that the Jewish people were given. And on top of the Ark is the symbol of the Jewish people. Now let's look back at the argument between Rashi and Nachmanides. Nachmanides views that what's the most important part in the world is the Torah. And therefore you have to build the Ark and then open the Ark and put the Torah inside. Because the Torah is what makes it an Ark. Rashi says, no, the Jewish people are the most important. Rashi says, what's going to be with the children? The children of God. How can it be that you be a holy of holies, the holiest place in the world, and God's children are not presented there, represented there? Who has in their own bedroom, what's your most sacred place in your home? What are you going to put up, the encyclopedia that you learned? Or just pictures of your children? Think about it. In your most comfortable places, What do you have? The pictures of the people you love. What does the Holy of Holies represent? God's most sacred place. Of course he's going to have the Torah, yes. That's the intellectual part. But who is God showing off? Where is he expressing his love? By putting a picture of his children, the little boy and the little girl, on the Krubim on top of the Ark. And that's why the Ark is one thing, and the Krubim is something else. The truth is, that this debate between Rashi and Achmanides is not only a debate between Rashi and Achmanides, but they're actually debating a different scholar. Elijah the Prophet. Elijah the Prophet is a medrash that's called Tanat And these are explanations and discussions that Elijah the Prophet had. And Elijah the Prophet talks about. And Elijah the Prophet says the following. Interesting episode. He says, One time I was walking along the way, And somebody found me and asked me the following question he said rabbi there are two things in this world and I love them both the Torah and the Jewish people but which one was my first love was my first love the Torah and because of that I gave it to my next love that I found and I said ah I like you guys so therefore I'm gonna give you the Torah or was my first love the Jewish people? And then I said, who can get the Torah? Only my first love, the Jewish people. And so, they told me. The response was, I said to him, I responded to this fellow. I said, the usual way of the world, they think, that the Torah came first. That was the first love. But I say, Elijah the prophet says, that the Jewish people are the first love. And only because the Jewish people are God's first love, therefore he gave them the Torah. What's Elijah the prophet saying here? Elijah the prophet is saying that God has two cherished beautiful things in this world. The Jewish people and the Torah. And he loves them both. But which one came because of which? That means are we only here to fulfill the words of the Torah? Or is the Torah only here because of the Jewish people? What would be the difference is who takes predominance, who takes order. If what takes order is the Torah, and then you're not following the Torah, then what's the purpose of the Jewish people? But if the dominant one is that the Jewish people is the first love, then it doesn't make a difference what they're following. I love the Jewish people. You have to keep the Torah because that makes you connected to me. That's because I give you a present. Imagine a guy owns this massive business. He has this beautiful factory business. He wants to give it to his children. Why does he give it to his children? Because he loves his business or because he loves his children? He loves his children and therefore he believes that they're the only ones that can take care of his business the way they're supposed to. God loves the Jewish people and because of that he believes that we're the only one that can keep the Torah properly. And that's why he gives us the Torah. You may ask, where did Elijah the prophet come up with such an idea? How did he come up with this beautiful concept? Because where does Elijah the prophet visit Every Seder table. Every circumcision. Elijah the prophet sees the Jewish people's commitment, no matter what kind of Jew you are, no matter how little or how low your level of observance may be, he sees that they follow, they have a Passover Seder in some form or shape. They all get a circumcision. Elijah the prophet's the one that can attest that every single Jew wants and has a relationship with God. Some a little more, some a little less. And therefore, he says, the first love is the Jewish people. This is exactly the connection and the understanding that we see over here. The relationship that the Jewish people have with God. The only way we can have relationship with God is with the Torah. That's true. And therefore, a Jew that doesn't follow and observe the Torah accordingly is missing in his relationship, doesn't have the full bars on his Wi-Fi is missing in some of his connection that he has. He can, has to intensify that connection. The relationship has to be a little better. But at the same time, that child, that Jew, is still always connected because it's God's first love. Imagine you have two children to a parent. You have a child to a parent that listens to everything that the, child, that the parent asks. Of course, they'll have a better relationship with their parent. And then you have a child who maybe doesn't call once a week. Maybe not even once a month. Or maybe gives a little anxiety, a little agita, you know, to the parents. Then all of a sudden the parents disown them? Absolutely not. They love them just as much. And who do we even know this from? From a one child who probably gave their parent the greatest heartache. And when that child passed, that father couldn't get over the passing of their child. King David had a child of Shalom. Who Avshalom, even while his father was alive, wanted to say that he's king, went up on the roof and started parading himself that he's the king. He rebelled in his father. Nothing worse. His father's king and he's parading around saying that he's king. And all of a sudden, the day of Avshalom came, he was riding on a horse and his horse was running in his beautiful long hair was flying up in the air, got stuck on a tree, and the mule from under him kept going and he was hanging between heaven and earth until finally he sunk into hell. And that's the way he died with Yoav coming behind him and killing him. King David goes and cries and mourns the passing of his son. And he cries out, Bini, Bini Avshalom, my son, my son, Shalom. He was bringing him out of the tortures of hell for what he did spiritually, bringing him into fi- trying to shape his soul spiritually. How is it possible? King David, this boy rebelled against you, wanted to kill you. But he's my son. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. We too are called God's children. <inaudible> we are God's children. And as the Talmud tells us, Without Even while there's an opinion that says, there's two opinions, it says, when you follow what I say, then you call it my children. If not, then I'm not going to call you my children. That's what Rabbi Yehuda says. Rabbi Meir says, whether we follow the commandments, whether we don't follow the commandments, we're still God's children. And therefore, what in the holiest place, there had to be a symbolism of God's children. Where was it? No other place than on the Ark of the Covenant. That cover was called the kaporas. And the Rebbe explains as follows. The word kaporas comes from the word kapara, atonement. What gives the Jewish people the ability to atone for their sins? What gives the Jewish people the ability to say, I made a mistake and I'm willing to shape up? Is because God didn't ship us out. It's because God said, I'm done with you. Should God say, you don't follow my commandments, have a nice day, you have no relationship? Who wants to come back? But as long as you know there's a relationship, then you know the door is always open and you can come back. Kaporeth, that means on the Kaporeth, God a symbol of the boy and the girl. That means there's an inherent relationship, a connection that God has with every single Jew. As there's still a baby. When a baby, there's a relationship. What's the relationship? Did the baby say anything? Did the baby do anything for the parent? No. But the child loves the baby. Can't get enough of it. Why? Because there's an inherent value. There's an inherent relationship that's there. And as dirty as the baby's diapers, the mother's going to go and change it. And as how many times it spits up on them, it's still going to love them. Why? What does the baby do for you? On the contrary, the baby wakes you up every hour. But this is what the Torah tells us. And that's why on the Kaporot, you have that picture of the boy and the girl, the little boy and the little girl telling us that exactly this is the relationship that God has with the Jewish people. It doesn't make a difference what we do, how we do it. We have an inherent relationship just like a little boy and a little girl. They say, takes it a step further. Rabbi Hudaloi explains, if you look in the Torah, there's no biography on Abraham. Abraham we start his life at 72 years old. Moses, it tells us when he was born, what happened, how he was saved. Isaac it says, Jacob, it says. Abraham it doesn't mention about him. Right away, Abraham, the first thing he does, God says, Where did you come from? who's your father? Where what, what happened to you? Because over here the Torah is teaching us that the relationship that God had with Abraham, which was the first Jew, who gave it to every single one of us, was not because he was an intellectual professor who figured out that God is the maker of the universe because he had an implanted he had an inherent relationship with God he had a certain level that he was able to connect with God more than anything else and that's exactly what the Kaporis teaches us these two Kruven. the boy and the girl is the relationship that God has with every single one of us not because we learn something not because I know something but because I am a child of God this we take a step further and we take it and we look at the ultimate shepherd of the Jewish people Moshe And Moshe was chosen to be the one to take the Jewish people out of exile, lead them through the desert, give them the Torah, build the tabernacle and bring them to the land of Israel. Why was Moshe chosen? Moshe was chosen to be the shepherd of the Jewish people because God saw that he was a shepherd. And he took care of his flock. And one little goat was running away and he chased it. And he said, oh he nebach, you're thirsty. Let me go take care of you. And God said, ah, he took care of his goat. And he can be a good shepherd for the Jewish people. Now let me ask you. If you were hired to be a shepherd, isn't that your job? That if a little goat runs away, you're going to chase it and bring it back? So what was the great greatness about Moshe? That he chased a little goat and brought it back and therefore God said, Ah, this is the guy I want. What did he do so unique? But there's one extra word, three extra words I should say, that the Medrash answers in its saying, When Moshe chased this little goat, He chased the little goat because he saw it was thirsty. Many times goats run away. But why do they run away? Because they want the exact same grass that everybody else is having. And the shepherd says, no, you can't have the grass. there. you got to have it there. But Moshe saw why the goat was running away. That means Moshe understood when there's somebody doing something wrong, there's an inner deeper reason of something bothering them. They're not just rebelling for the sake of rebelling. Moshe was a leader because he listened, he understood, he was able to appreciate and see what was bothering his flock, what was bothering this goat. He didn't just see this goat going away because it wanted to have something else. He saw the goat was bothered because it was thirsty. It needed something. Moshe understood that when there's a child disturbing in class, it's not that the child is disturbing because it wants to disturb, it's because the child is asking for something. Moshe understood that when there's a child rebelling, the child doesn't want to rebel. It's because it's demanding for a certain attention that maybe it hasn't been getting. No child wants to be separated from his parents. No child wants to be disconnected from where they are. No Jew wants to be disconnected from God. There's a thirst, there's a desire, there's something they're missing. And because they're missing something, they're asking for something. And maybe they don't have the right words to ask. So therefore it comes out in a rebellious state. The Rebbe said this in the 60s, when there was the cults and the Harekishnas and all the different things. And the Rebbe said the generation today is rebelling. They're rebelling because they're searching. So take their search and give them Judaism. And then when all the secular survivor parents came and said, You're making our children religious? And he said, What would you rather to be in the Hare Krishnas? They're searching, they're rebelling. There's a reason why they went to Woodstock and they were smoking all the things they did. It was because they didn't like what the parents were forcing them to be doctors, lawyers, accountants, whatever it may be. They were looking for something deeper meaning in life. Moshe, the leader then and the leader of our generation as well, tells us, When you see a Jew that's wandering, It's not because he wants to be disconnected from God. He's Kaporos. He's that little child on the ark. There are some people that have a relationship with God, with studying, with learning. But that's not for everybody. Everybody can, of course, learn and be connected. But some of them need to start and recognize their inherent connection, that they're a child of Almighty God sitting on top of the ark, connected where the Divine Presence comes from. The test that Moshe was given was to see that Moshe was a true leader. A true leader understands not everybody that rebels is against you. They could be rebelling because they want more attention. This is what the Torah is teaching us. When we talk about the entire, we look at the world around us. We look at people that may be not so associated with Judaism or the way they should be. We have to look at them as the child that's sitting on the Ark of the Covenant that has a relationship to God where the divine presence is coming from. We all have that inherent relationship. They're calling for our attention, they're calling for our help, so how can we help them? If it's not in the regular way, then we have to find a different way. Which takes us to the next step that even if we talk about why the Moses have to even break the tablets. What did Moshe say? What was Moses' rationale? Moshe said if the Jewish people if the Torah is meant for the Jewish people if the first love is the Jewish people and you want to give them something one second if they it's not meant for them then why have it? Because the Jewish people are their priority. The same idea is that sometimes we get caught up when we say the school is meant for the student not for the place of the student. And therefore, if the student is not accomplishing what he needs to in school, then we need to reinvent it, make it work for them. What, you can have a school and say, your kid doesn't fit here? What's a school for if not for students? And therefore, when we talk about the Torah, the Torah is for the Jewish people, and at Moshe at that time, when he came came down the mountain, and he broke the luchos, he said, because what's the whole Torah if not for the Jewish people? Then there's no need for the Torah. The idea is as well, when we look at a Jewish person, we have to remember every single Jew has a relationship with God. Every single Jew has a relationship with God like a baby has a relationship with their parent. It's not because of what the baby did. It's not because of what the baby accomplished. It's because of their inherent relationship. That's what gives us also the power to know that we can always come back. We can always return. We can always atone for our sins. It's never too late because that relationship that we have never goes away. It's only up to us to develop that relationship. We don't want to stay babies forever. We have to develop it into mature adults, into learning and understanding and appreciating. Because the more we develop that relationship, the more we deep dig into the box itself, into the Ark of the Covenant, and we understand the words of the Torah, that relationship grows and is appreciated until we see the beauty of God's first love of who we really are.